0: This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn
1: and welcome to Future You I'm Michael Horn Uh, not joined at the moment by my colleague, Jeff Salingo. He's out on assignment for his latest book, but he'll be uh, with us a little bit later in this episode, but really excited uh, for this episode and the conversation we're about to have with Jason Delisle, a uh, resident fellow at American Enterprise Institute, a staple uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And Jason has really carved out a strong voice over the last couple years there on thinking about higher education, financing, student loans, and other topics that are of hot debate in the media and actually get airtime uh, across a lot of platforms. And Jason, uh, welcome to Future U. Thanks for having me. So I want to start uh, with how you got into this crazy space of higher education. You worked on Capitol Hill. You had an expert in budgeting, I I believe. But that doesn't necessarily cry out higher education. So how did you sort of get into this world to begin with?
2: Yeah, I mean, it started with just a general interest in public policy, and that's how I ended up working on Capitol Hill. Um, And I was working for um, a congressman, Tom Petri, uh, who was very senior on the education committee. And he um, had this interest in um, in, in student loans, um, and I was you know working on education for him, uh, and so I ended up sort of taking on this this student loan portfolio and. Um, and what I noticed right away was, um, you know, you go into these meetings, and it was all of these staff who were, were education people, and they were, they they knew about vouchers, and they knew for K twelve education, and they knew about uh, no child left behind and special education, and then um, the topic of student loans would come up, and they just they were kind of lost. Uh, and I would really sort of watch the student loan companies come in then and just sort of run roughshod over them. Interesting. And I thought, hey, here's an opportunity. Um, I'm interested in this topic. And, and, and here's a place where I think there's there's you know room for a lot more thinking. So you've uh, delved into that deeply then
1: over the last several years, first at New America Foundation after you left Capitol Hill and then with, with AEI. And you've written recently a lot about how we think about student loan default rates and and that conversation, because we hear a lot about that in the news. And it's often a way to judge programs. And I'd love it if you just step back and break down when a student goes into default on their
2: loans, what does that actually mean? And what do we know about what happens to them afterward? Yeah, Uh, so defaulting on a loan is not making payments, Um, and you know, in very technical terms, the federal government—these are on federal student uh, loans—it's not making a payment for something like 270 days, Um, and so you know, you've gone a long time without making an on-time payment, Um, and at that point, uh, or a little bit thereafter, um, a a bunch of things start to kick in, right, where the, the Department of Education takes the loan, and then they assign it to a collection agency um, that tries to recover the money from you. Um, but it, you know, it turns out that you know, this is just sort of described um, you know, in, in the media and even among policymakers as this sort of catastrophic um, sort of terminal status of the loan, right? The, um, but you know, what, what we looked at is we wanted to figure out, well, it's a government program. So there's a bunch of policies, and there's a bunch of things that are supposed to happen after somebody defaults. And, and what are those? And what do they look like? Um, so we got our hands on some data to do that. We also did a lot of interviews. Um, and it turns out um, that, uh, you know, a, a large share of the loans after they default end up being repaid. Um, something, like, how, like what percentage? Yeah, something about, like, you know, within a few years after default, within about five years after the default point, about 30% are fully paid off. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things here is that... Well, you know, what people sort of come to realize, in the, at least in the policy world over the past few years, is that uh, the, the defaults on federal student loans are actually f- relatively low balances, $3,000, 4000 $5,000 dollars. And so then you can start to sort of see how, oh, well, I can see how somebody then could go on to pay that after defaulting, right? And that's, you know, and that, and that, is, that is what we see. Now, it's not exactly, it's not always a pretty sort of repayment process at that point, right? The federal government um, can have your wages garnished, uh, and they'll seize your tax refund um, if you're in default on your loan, but when they're doing those two things, um, we see in the data, it looks like that people are sort of paying down these loans fairly quickly after they've defaulted. And do we, did you do interviews with actual
1: students in those circumstances to figure out what their impact on their lives might be during that?
2: Yeah, uh, we, we didn't. Um, I've done, I, and, and actually sort of the idea for this work came out of some focus group work that I did when I was at New America in 2015 in a paper called Why Student Loans Are Different. Um, we went around the country and hired a firm to do focus groups where we, where we asked this sort of thing, like, what is it like to default on your loan, and why aren't you paying? Um, and so this sort of motivated it, where what we were hearing from people was, was you know, just, uh, just a lot of different kinds of descriptions. It wasn't necessarily the sort of um, catastrophic kinds of um, life events that, that we sometimes associate with a, with a student loan default.
1: So is there a better way to think about policy than in terms of judging whether a program, let's, let's turn down to the higher education programs, is a good programmer or not? Because right now the the, the storyline is often, well that's a, often it's a for-profit university in the storyline and they have such and such default rate, therefore it must be a bad program. Is there a better way to think about, uh, from a policy perspective and measures perspective, whether a program is good or bad?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think what lo- why we've really focused on loans as the sort of proxy for quality and affordability um, is, is because it's, it's also, you know, I mean, it is a proxy for those things, but it's not exactly those things, right? And what we really are after Uh, in the sort of using loans as default is we want to know how much did you pay and how much are you earning? And do those things work out, right? Are you are you earning enough to justify what you paid for the education? Uh, and the loan is, and sort of absent that information, mm-hmm. right? Which is which is all which is actually until fairly recently, which is an interesting story, ha- has been absent. And so when policymakers in the early '90s said, "Well, we need some measure," I said, "Well, why don't we look at loans? That's the closest we can get to how much did you pay? How and, much?" And you and were te- Tell it. our audience why that was the closest that they could get at that time. So it's the closest they could get inside. The, just really, you know the the idea and the practicality of collecting information on what students were paying and what they were earning uh, for various programs and credentials was just sort of, you know, really not even thing somebody could have thought of to do at that time. It wasn't really on anybody's radar screen. And I don't even know if practically speaking, it it could have been done in anything like, uh, you know, in a timely manner. Interesting. So stepping back,
1: it, it sounds like from your perspective, better measures would be uh, everything from return on investment, or is your salary such pre and post uh, that it justifies whatever the cost of the program was? And secondly, dollars paid down over the life of the loan. Is that is that an accurate re- reflection of where you
2: are? I mean, it is, but also like, you know, in, in part of this discussion, right, the the loan, like we all, we just sort of reach for the loan as the, as the way to measure as the stuff, thing. right? Yeah. Uh, what's amazing though, is that most of the money is in grants <laughs> and that's just sort of Nobody, it's interesting, right? Like, nobody from a policy point, so we're talking about like protecting taxpayers. That's some of the motivation here, right? Some of it's protecting consumers, some of it's protecting taxpayers. It's sometimes very slippery, which one it is we're doing. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, if we're protecting taxpayers and, and also to a certain extent consumers, like, we should care about grants too. But then, I, you know, I sort of say, well, then really, but let's just, let's just call it what it is, which is how much did you pay? Yeah. Right? And how much did somebody else pay? In, in that case. And so I think, you know, that's what, that's what we're looking for. Um, and I think loans have been this, just this, they started out as a proxy, uh, and they've become the thing just because they've, they've been part of the policy and the conversation for so long. And I really think we do need to like to get away from that.
1: Yeah, no, that's helpful. So let's start to segue on that conversation, because you've written a lot about how high default rates don't, and and, and sort of these other more comprehensive measures don't just affect for Profit institutions, public community colleges, and things like that are, are equally, if not in some cases more, guilty of these sorts of things as well. How, how do we, how do you start to enlarge that conversation then, and, and, and think about how we should uh, uh, judge these rates, if you will?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, this is one of the things I've just sort of noticed in watching this debate around, you know, what I sort of call the like the the accountability transparency agenda in, mm-hmm. in higher ed, especially in, in federal higher ed, um, and it, you know, it's it's very. Um, The agenda is sort of if it were a person, it would be very coy about low and bad performance on loans at community colleges. <laughs> right? It just sort of would look the other way or or maybe blush a little bit, right? Um, and and I think that's you know but but what we're seeing, you know, when we look at, at the data and we try to sort of expose this is that the the loan repayment rates at at community colleges or even open enrollment um, public universities. Like UMUC and, in, like in Maryland. That's yep. right. And even in, in graduate schools. Um, you know, the, the loan repayment rates and the default rates look quite similar if you're comparing apples to apples with for-profit colleges. Um, the, the difference, though, is that the, the 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 share of the students who are taking out loans is lower at community colleges. And people will, people will sort of reflexively point this out whenever I make this when I ever make this argument. They say, "Oh, well, a smaller share uh, of students borrow there." And I to which I always say, "Well, so what?" <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> fair, fair, fair enough. So. Uh, is, is the other part of your argument that they also are getting a lot more subsidy, whereas the for-profits are not? Is that, is that where you're going on some of this and
2: thinking about the ROI not just to the individual but to society? Well, I, I mean, there's – yeah, and I have sort of – I've done a paper on that, um, which, we, which we call uh, – uh, which we titled um, Measuring Value or Measuring Subsidy, right? Mm-hmm. Which is if you, um, if you subsidize something enough to the consumer, it will look like uh, – it will look like a great deal, Right. Sort of the sort of the argument of if you give me a big enough subsidy, I will put a windmill where there's no wind. Right. You can sort of hide the fact that there's not a lot of value here by overly subsidizing it. Right. So um, and that, that is one issue. But I think the more important issue with, with bringing in the public colleges and this sort of accountability and transparency conversation is that a bad student outcome is a bad student outcome. It doesn't matter where he went to school. It doesn't matter what percentage of students borrowed, right? And, and also, to the point on loans, um, it doesn't matter if you use the government's money or you used your own, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if we really care about problematic student outcomes and low return on investment, then we want to see all that, right? So how would you start from a practical perspective of, of
1: putting that regulation in, in, in action? Because one of the natural reactions, I think, is, sure, you may be right, Jason, but... Uh, For-profits have less lobbying power and political power on Capitol Hill, so it's easier to put a regulation like gainful employment on them, and then if it works really well, yeah, we can have that larger conversation down the road. How would you how would you do uh, go about?
2: Yeah, this? Yeah, so I mean, I think what we should what we should start with, um, and I'm not sure that you know, I'm not sure that that the the, the regulatory route um, will sort of bear the fruits that everybody thinks it does. Um, but I, I think you know, and may have lots of unintended consequences. But the um, which I can go into. But the you know, I, I think what we should start with, which we really haven't done um, fully yet, is. You know decide sort of disclose this information, do a better job of disclosing this information, making it available uh, for people who want to use it right so and this information, I mean what are you paying and what are you earning right um, This is really kind of what we're getting at and and to a large extent you know this information is missing, um, not completely, but it's missing, right? So it's missing um, at the program level. We can get it for for an institution uh, for through a the college institution. scorecard, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm, through the college scorecard. We can't get it for graduate schools, right? Right. Well, we can't get it for undergraduate. Uh, we can't get it at the program level, which matters a lot. Um, we also can't get it for people who don't receive federal student aid, right? Because it's this sort of like this is supposed to be this taxpayer investment issue, although it's consumer protection, which is... Again, this is my point about this is sort of Slipper, slippery. They're sort of muddled, <laughs> yep, sure, right? sure. It's very slippery. Um, so, so I think that the sort of making this information available, more available, I think is is a route to pursue more aggressively, um, and it, w- with a sort of drawing the line of well, um, well, then what what should the government do with the information? And I'm not sure that that's the right that's necessarily the right approach that the government should then do something with this information because I think it leads to things like. Making lots of difficult judgment calls about what these things should be worth and 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 what they're not worth i'm I'm all for having a sort of like floor for value mm-hmm. right and and sort of consumer protection um but i I see this sort of slippery slope of well, um you know a master's of social work it's very expensive it's very low earnings is that right a low but societal return? value might be high,
1: and so should we be thinking about should we be judging that
2: that's right and so you know and that and and what i see there right is that actually you know the the whole sort of accountability transparency, transparency debate has really been one framed of where people on the sort of political left are for this they're the champions of this and people on the political right are sort of conflicted and divided and sort of defensive um but really, this argument I just made about the masters of social work, um, you know, it isn't going to be the people on the right, political right, saying— We're stepping up for that. That's right. And it'll be people on, generally on the left, and they'll be saying, oh, we have to have exemptions and carve-outs, and I have a different assessment of what's worth it and what's not. Right? If you, there's actually a really interesting story on the, the very original gainful employment regulation proposal, the first rule that the Obama administration codified and put out there. Um, They actually exempted uh, any borrower uh, making progress towards the public service loan forgiveness program from the accountability regime. Hmm. This is sort of buried in there, but this, and this is what you see the more you look at these sort of rules and regulations, and so what you see is the people who are talking the toughest about it are also people who have lots of carve outs and exemptions and and uh, sort of almost gimmicks baked into these policies interesting so, so last question uh, on, on, on our end as we start to
1: conclude our time with you, uh, which I want to turn to something that has been controversial, I think that you 've written a lot about, which is that you 've said. State budget cuts, a lot of people say, as the state has retreated from financing public higher education, in effect, that has caused the tuition increases that we've seen over the last couple decades. And you've pushed back on that. Uh, you, you wrote an article recently about the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, I think, showing that for every dollar that was cut, tuition rose 17 cents. So, not quite explanatory of everything going on. Uh, and that even in times of the last uh, uh, several years where, where states have actually been getting back into the higher ed financing game to some measure, Tuition hasn't slowed. So yeah. I'd love you to break So I think that's your evidence. Uh, I'd love you to break down the debate, though, a little bit. Um, and isn't it possible that it's part of the story, though, even if it's not the whole story?
2: Yeah, it's definitely part of the story. And, and really, the, the argument that we were trying to make and sort of push on this is that um, how much of the story is it? Right, and and it sort of seemed like you know for all the, the sort of the academics and the research and the studies in, in, in higher education uh, and so much rigor being brought to bear and so much robust debate, right, um, and then that this issue just just sort of sat there and nobody really questioned it, and um, you know then there wasn't, but but there was actually a little bit of research there suggesting that the relationship between state funding for tuition subsidies and changes in tuition, is not one-for-one. One. Uh, like many people sort of have us believe said this, so this is the leading cause of, of increases at public What do you see the leading cause as? Well, I wouldn't necessarily know exactly. I don't think you can sort of pin it on one thing. Yeah. You know, but, but look, so here, so here are some explanations why it might not be the one-for-one one relationship that everybody thinks, right? So, so to your point, if, if appropriations and funding goes up um, then, and, and, and tuition still goes up, well, just mathematically, now the relationship doesn't look very strong, right? And so really what what, you, what this starts to, to expose is that maybe universities set their prices regardless of how much they get, right? And so they, maybe they're trying to get prices that they think the market will bear. Um, and maybe they're going to increase spending and then increase prices regardless of how much subsidy they get. So it's just sort of this loose transmission mechanism. Mm-hmm. And we wanted you know people to, to at least be aware of that. Appreciate you
1: uh, shining light, uh, uh, leading the uh, conversation to really debate these issues in a very transparent, honest way. And uh, thanks for joining us on Future U. Thanks. And we'll be right back.
0: This episode of Future U was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University, and is the
2: premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions.
1: And welcome back to Future You. I'm Michael Horn, and now joined by the uh, the Jeff Selingo, uh back from uh, reporting on your forthcoming book on the college admissions process.
0: Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. I was uh, visiting some high school students uh, this morning, and while you were interviewing uh, Jason, so sorry to have missed that. But it, it's great to be back here.
1: No worries. Jason and I had a very wonky but uh, important conversation, I would say, on a, on a number of topics around student financing and, and higher education financing. And the one that I thought we'd start with was we talked a lot about how he said. Default rates are what we default to as the measure of success, particularly for, say, for-profit programs and things like that, but that he thinks a better measure is looking at really return on investment, and it seems like default rates... Suffer from a number of limitations, and you've been covering this industry for for, for years. How do you think about that tension? And, and when you were a reporter, thinking about quality and so forth, how did you report out uh, and and on default rates? And view yeah, that I mean, in a it's picture? it's a
0: tough one, as you say. It's uh, it's it's the pe- best piece of data we had for a long time. Um, but uh, default rates only measure a a moment in time, right? Right after graduation, while students are in repayment mode. There's a lot of ways that colleges, particularly, can manage defaults to keep their default rates down. And, and and there's been a lot of reporting on that. And finally, it affects only people who take on loans. Uh, so those tend to be uh, institutions where a lot of more lower-income students enroll. So I don't think it's a great measure. We have now have better measures. And in, in more than a dozen states, you know, we're starting to track through unemployment insurance information. We're starting to track, and we're able to track... Uh, how much students make uh, based on program, and then we could track it back to program and institution. So we are starting to have better measures of labor market outcomes, which I think is a much better measure of ROI. I mean, it's clear that ROI is here. I think when when this whole discussion started probably five, six years ago, uh, there was a big pushback from higher education. We shouldn't measure degrees by ROI. But I think most most academics have come to the conclusion that given their rising cost of college, that this is here to stay. And the fact, and we mentioned this on one of the earlier shows in this new season, Michael, uh, given your book, is that you know most students now go to college to get a better job, whether they're 18 years old or whether they're 50 years old, and so this has to be a way to measure this. And, and default rates, I don't think, work anymore.
1: Yeah, and I'm, my take on it was, of course, from an entangled perspective, where we helped develop the Education Quality Assurance Standards Board, and we came up with standards around learning outcomes, uh, how you measure completion rates, how you measure placement rates into jobs or further higher education, how you measure return on investments. So the salary growth over the cost of the program, both to the individual and society. So you look at both of those and then thinking about, learner satisfaction after they've left the program, not a net promoter score, which I think is a little empty.
0: Yeah, but all of this, of course, requires data, right? Yes. And so one of the reasons we don't have this at the federal level is because that in a previous iteration of the Higher Education Act, uh, the, the, uh, national, yep. yeah, the National Association of uh, Independent Colleges, the private colleges, really fought the idea of a, um, of, a of a student unit record, um, which would enable us to follow students after graduation and, and know what their labor market outcomes are. But we now have better data on this. Thanks to the college scorecard. Uh, we, we know a little bit about um, labor market outcomes of, of students and what they're making. Uh, and there was an announcement uh, uh, recently at an education writers association when uh, where Mark Schneider, uh, uh, who does statistics for the government and Diane Howard Jones, uh, both men uh, who's with the education department, both mentioned that the next iteration of the college scorecard are going to include certificates um, as well as master's and professional degrees um, in terms of their market outcomes, right? So it's not only people who are uh, pursuing associate degrees or, or bachelor's degrees, but also people now at these other ends of the spectrum in higher education who can look at what is my ROI of this um, program? And so they're getting closer to the individual program level, but it'll still be aggregated by degree, it sounds like. It, it does sound like that. They didn't have much information on this, but, the, but it did sound like this. But I guess the other question then is, uh, and and I think Jason talked about this during the conversation, is that will students use this?
1: Yeah, and, and you know, Jason's clear perspective was government beware, do not regulate fitting someone in right, AI, right, right. Uh, you know, that there will be unintended consequences, which I thought he raised some good points about, that we might not choose to invest in a social work program because of the ROI uh, in terms of what we pay social workers, but the societal impact may still actually be very important, and we want to subsidize those sorts of programs. Uh, and so how far down the road do we go? What which I is an
0: academic, which has been, you know, the argument of many academics totally, up totally. to this point. And,
1: and, and what I didn't push him on, uh, but I'd love your take on, uh, is that from my read just data transparency on its own doesn't necessarily work, and we've seen a lot of evidence that maybe it helps the most advantaged students that have the capacity to absorb and and assimilate that information and make decisions, but those disadvantaged students that need that information to figure out ROI, am I likely to get placed, et cetera, tend not to take advantage of those data
0: sources when they are out there so what do we do about that uh, I, this is so true I mean one of the biggest early takeaways uh, from my book research um, and it's not that surprising is what I would call the unevenness of the college search process um, largely based on income right so uh, if you come from a higher income household uh, you're more likely to for example to go to a, a better public school sometimes you go to a private school you have access to better counselors uh, I met students students. students who already, quote unquote, workshopped their college essays over the summer with professional writers. I mean, all this stuff. Right. And meanwhile, you have other students who, you know, come back after Labor Day. They still really haven't thought about college. They can barely get 10 minutes with their counselor because their counselor is overworked. And so then we just say, okay, well, if we just throw more information at these students, They'll make better choices. And I actually think that, yes, we have more information than ever before, thanks to the Internet, but we're now overwhelming students. And, and, and in some cases, it's helping students who already have advantages be able to sift through that information. So what I think, and we see this with the research, is that we don't, can't overwhelm students with this information. We kind of have to give it to them at the moment they need it and in short chunks. It's almost in ways about how we best learn as well, right? Let's not overwhelm us with content, but tell us what we need to know when we need to know it. So for example, uh, later this fall, UCLA is going to be doing some experiments around texting uh, as early as eighth grade now around college. Because as they point out, senior year is too late to start really thinking about college, right? You have to take the right courses in high school and things like that. So They've been doing a lot of work in California, especially in, in low-income and first-generation high schools, uh, about getting the pathway right to college, but it hasn't quite worked still. Um, but now let's meet students where they are, and let's do it as short as something you could fit into text. And the more I think we do this, even around the ROI thing, you know, give information, shorter chunks, when students need it, in, in iterative and in episodic standpoints over their time, I think it's going to be much more... Um, it's going to show much more success. So that sounds like a good design principle for the uh,
1: neutral arbiter that I hope comes along and and, and doles out that information, not just the institutions, but it's, I think, a pretty big insight of small chunks uh, to help people make better decisions. So fascinating conversation with jason for the first half and always a fascinating conversation when you join us as well jeff so uh for all those listening thank you so much and if you're listening on itunes or wherever you're listening please rate us uh, subscribe tell your friends and until next time we'll see you on future you